Welcome, everyone, to the uh, City's First Podcast. I am your host, founder and host, uh, Scott Shepard, and we're delighted to have here today uh, Carmen Mays from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Carmen Mays is a leading innovator in the industry of urbanism as well as entrepreneurship. Uh, Carmen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great, great. Thanks for being here. Um, And what I'm going to do, as we always do, everyone knows kind of our format at the City's First it's really a discussion, so it's just going to be a conversation. We're going to hand the mic over to Carmen. She's going to give us her thoughts on about four topical issues related to urbanism, as well as innovation in the ecosystem. But we'll start off with Carmen's bio, and then we'll just uh, get things started. So um, just to kind of introduce everyone to uh, Carmen, um, she is the founder and CEO of Elevators in Birmingham, Alabama. And Carmen is an urbanist and creative entrepreneur that believes in the balance of thought leadership and implementation. She affirms that all people have value and each place holds invaluable stories. Carmen employs a place-based approach that facilitates agency and self-determination to develop blueprints that industry leaders successfully leverage. So we're really excited again to have you here today. Carmen, I know your uh, bio goes another five or six more paragraphs, but we had to (laughs) brief uh, and, you know, people can find you on social media and they'll really get into, you know, your experience Mm -hmm. with Birmingham City Council and all these different government agencies. I know Greenville, South Carolina, really cool, exciting stuff. So that's why I was so jazzed to have you here. So thanks again. Um, So I think we're just going to jump right into it and get started. Uh, Not a lot of fluff in our uh, podcast. So the first question I'm going to hand you the mic is basically, um, what is your approach to placemaking urbanism in Birmingham, Alabama? Oh, okay. So thank you for having me. Uh, so um, Birmingham is world renowned for our civil rights history. Um, it's also a blue collar place. Um, we have the moniker Magic City because it's as if by magic, this city sprung up uh, in what is called Jones's Valley uh, because this is one of few places in the world where all the ingredients you need to make steel uh, and iron are located. So we have iron ore and coal and all this other, all these other minerals that are like really right here. Learning and this right has, now, I never knew that. Wow. Yeah, that is, um, that is what drove our economy. That is why Birmingham exists. <laughs> um, it was also known as the Pittsburgh of the South. I was just gonna say um, Pittsburgh of the South. Yeah, yeah. that's what it resonated. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And mm-hmm. um, throughout that history, uh, Birmingham is also a post-Civil War city. So we don't have a pre-Civil War history. It was founded after the Civil War. No antebellum and, there. Okay, got it. Got it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very beautiful place, but also, like I said, a place of, of grit, uh, resilience, mm-hmm. and perseverance. The blue-collar history, the civil rights history. Um, the history of labor, a lot mm. of the labor movements that people uh, attach to today are started here. Um, the lynchings that occurred here were because black men were declared were demanding equal wages, right. not just racial parity. So there's a uh, a connection there between labor and civil rights that mm-hmm. is really here in Birmingham. But what it means is that because so many of the things that negatively impacted residents, particularly black residents, happened in public space. My approach to placemaking is really about reclaiming public space and recognizing and honoring what has happened in these places, but also making space for joy, Mm -hmm. not just as something that we all deserve, but joy as a protest, 
as well to to really um, celebrate the resilience and the progress, and to also demonstrate that we're not going back um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. as we continue to experience different things here in the United States. So, um, you know, my approach is very much about making sure that people have the agency um, within themselves to name and declare spaces what they want them to be, and also the self-determination to decide for themselves what they want, how they want it to be, and, you know, empower them to do it. Um, So that my approach is very much rooted in a restorative practice uh, because of what happened in public space. Performing urban surgery in a restorative place-based, positive, proactive manner that uh, reclaims and empowers communities. I I really love that. Um, And that's an approach that is really uh, setting the template for the future and turning the page for how we view cities and public spaces. So really, uh, really interesting kind of perspective on that. Um, And let's hope that that uh, continues to flourish, not only in Birmingham, but in cities nationwide too. But I think you're, you're setting a real clear example of what what can be for the future. Um, absolutely. So good, getting into our next question here, um, unless you wanted to add to that, because that's some gr- great stuff, or we can weave that into the next question too, um, yeah. is how can urban stakeholders ensure greater access to an equity in shared and micro-ability? So kind of what I mean by that is the themes of equity and access, which are pretty commonplace now, in active transportation and uh, shared modes is something that many city stakeholders are starting to uh, place front and center, uh, perhaps in Chicago, Los Angeles, cities across the nation in evaluating, let's say private mobility schemes, whether they be dockless bike share, uh, e-scooters, et cetera. And how are they really um, layering into these, let's say qualitative concerns that uh, cities as well as community leaders need to consider to um, deliver uh, on their uh, policy goals, you know, from much more of a longer term basis. Yeah, so I mean, transportation here in Alabama is very much influenced by the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and um, that was over 12 and, months long it took, was it? At least. It was yeah, over it was, 12 it months, was, right? It was a long time. Yeah. And the punishment, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I guess so this I may or may not. I don't think this is controversial. because that is No, please. I I, let's, no use the whole question, talk, let's just talk about it. <laughs> um, is that, you know, you know, the state of Alabama does not fund public transportation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know. To this day? Effects, to this day, right now, today. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm learning so much just in this last five minutes. <laughs> like, so, I mean, to, to many of us, this is cause and effect. The punishment. And this is a legacy right? of the boycott. They stopped funding yeah. the state because it was used as a punishment, is what you're saying. That's, that's, that's what I'm gleaning from it. I um, wholeheartedly agree. People, like. people will make arguments in, in different contexts, but... And that's that's what I'm going to stand behind. Yeah, let's not mince <laughs> um, words. No. And um, because of that, we don't have a well-developed transit system. We have been trying. We have been limping along to develop one. Um, you know, we do have some routes that have always been used because they transport labor to more wealthier uh, suburbs, particularly. Mm-hmm. 
um, housemaids, um, nannies, and that such. They, you know, sector. they always have a bus. You know, yeah. they they always have a bus that yeah. miraculously runs on time. Yeah, for that, um, they're all set. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it is it is not a practical. It's not practical for uh, everyday use. Um, but I, I, I do want to address, you know, the ideas around planning that really. Um, can some that often like originate from a place of privilege and don't recognize the effects of classism mm-hmm. on minority populations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I've worked in cities doing transportation demand management and encouraging people well before the pandemic to adopt teleworking to reduce emissions, um, right, of course, or encouraging people to uh, take the bus system. I remember one dude was like, he was like, but sister, I just got a call. Mm. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. And understanding the social pressure that poor people mm-hmm. experience and how much energy, time, effort they spend on not looking poor because we treat poor people so badly mm-hmm. that people are going out of their way to like, yes, I, I saved all my money. I finally got me a car. Just and now you're telling me to ride the bus? Yeah, because the bus like has the such bus a negative from... stigma in, in the United yes. States. Not in, in the other, United States. This is only in the United States, not in Canada or not in Europe or other places. This is a U.S. phenomenon. It is. And so, you know, while we're running around saying bike lanes, bike lanes, or, you know, BR, you know bus rapid transit, or, or we want better bus systems, we are not really understanding mm-hmm. those social classes pressures because we're not poor people. I'm like, I want a bike because I bought this expensive e-bike and I want to ride it to work and I want protected bike lanes. You're and like I'm thinking, wealthy enough to dr- to not drive, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying, so when or we're privileged enough people, not to drive. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, you know, you can just ride your bike. And it's like, but People are going to think I'm poor. And if no. people think I'm poor, then they're going to mistreat me. They're going to disregard me. They're more likely to hit me with their car. You're going to be a social pariah in that context. Yes. Is what you're saying. I will be profiled. Yep. And so you're going to bring all this it, negative onto you. Yes. And wow. so this a is A lot of planners are not are, thinking about that in the U.S. at all. No. Not at all. They're not putting this context into play when, again, you're talking about bike lanes, BRT, on demand, all these types of, uh, you know, new, let's say, post-COVID city schemes or whatever we Mm -hmm. want to call the term. Absolutely. And we're not considering how people who have been marginalized, what their relationship is to these things. For centuries. So this is not a for century. So <laughs> yes. And so if <laughs> you're if you're doing your best to not look poor, so you're not mistreated, you're not profiled, you're not questioned about where mm-hmm. you stand, like physically, like you're standing here minding your business, but you look poor, so you must be menacing. Oh. Um, like you know, if you're planning from that perspective, when we talk about micro mobility, shared mobility, and alternatives to driving. Or whatever that is the perspective, or, or whatever it is, that's where we need to be planning from. No, that's Not where we need from, to start. You know, yeah. I went to hang out in Europe in June, and let me tell you about all the great things I did when I was in Amsterdam, which is great. But the reality is, the majority of people who live in our cities are experiencing some sort of marginalization, and we all don't have the same experience in public. 
a black trans woman on a bicycle is not necessarily as safe as a white man on a bicycle. Of course. That is not how that works. And so if we're not basically planning for the most marginalized, we're going to still leave a lot of people out, even when we paint the road green and put in these bike lanes and, you know, have these systems. And, and this is kind of like, I worked on like the BR, we had a bus rapid transit system that just launched that I had worked on as a graduate school intern in 2009. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it was already designed <laughs> when I came onto the project. Yeah. So, you know, 20, <laughs> 25 years yeah. in the making to have this bus rapid transit system. And we're still not clear on how to deploy hardware and software together of the city to include people to ride it. Cause it's in proximity to poor people. It's in proximity to marginalized people. It should but, check, it, in theory, it should check off all the boxes. It should. It should, but, it but no one's addressing, hey, you know, if I get on this bus, you're going to think I'm poor mm-hmm. and you're going to treat me a certain way. I will not be respected the same way. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a different experience and we're not, we're not planning from that experience. Don't you think that we are regurgitating the same centralized top-down urban planning that we've always done from mid-century, 20th century onwards? So this is really no different than the criticisms that are thrown towards Robert Moses and others who basically, you know, with a broad brush stroke, knew what was best for cities, whether it was New York or Baltimore, anywhere, and basically was totally disengaged with the community and did it in a in a fashion where basically projects, whether they were green or not, whether they're auto-centric or they were bike-centric, were still done in a top-down fashion without engaging at the right level of understanding the right historical, cultural, or social context that would, um, let's say, enrich a project and make it that much more successful. I've, you know, I've uh, basically thrown the same type of criticism towards many smart cities projects as well, too, recently. So just my perspective is, don't you think that that is just we're recycling some of that tendency towards the top-down approach versus bottom-up? Yeah, in a way, I think that, um, you know, the nature of funding around plant transportation planning, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you, you go through and you, you design these things and you want to put this piece together and like you bring it before the city council. It's like, we're going to do this. And then we just wait. Mm-hmm. to see if we get the money. Um, because there is not just a practice of prolonged, just not necessarily prolonged, but just like practiced engagement, right? Yeah. So we're, we're constantly- With each step of the way. Engaging, yes. you know, even if there's not a project going on, just like constant engagement with the residents about um, ideas around cities and getting their people, new what ideas. are your ideas yes, around new cities? ideas. Um, and, and, and then using that to drive policy decisions and design decisions. You know, we only engage, you know, residents like when it's prescribed, mm-hmm. you know, in the NOFO, you know, the notice of funding opportunity that mm-hmm. you must have community engagement. Right? Yeah, check off But that like box. this ongoing civic engagement, this ongoing exposure um, to just different ideas, you know, mm-hmm. 
and 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 mobility is different in the states as it is in Europe. I mean, people in Europe move across countries and cities, particularly now with the EU, obviously. But like they just they're all they've been much more exploratory. There are many people in the city of Birmingham and other cities around this country that really don't go more than two hours away. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or 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 you know they have a they may go visit somewhere, but they're experiencing it like a tourist. Yeah, and so they don't local. really get to yeah. kind of take in the experience and be like, oh, that's a nice, a nice park. We should have one of those parks in Birmingham. Like, you know, that's not necessarily what the experience is. And so it, it can feel it feels even without intention, which I want to like it can, even when you don't intend for it to be a certain way, it can still have that same effect. So while the intention may not be top down, the effect is still the same. That's what I've been and... sensing, at least. That's yeah. <laughs> if they don't intend to be like Robert Moses or anything. No one wants no. to. Be. We've all read no, the power broker. We know that. But I think yeah. the end result is we're acting like a bunch of little Robert Moseses, you know, doing you know certain green active transportation projects and not engaging with the community on a continuous basis enough. Yeah, it, it should be continuous always. Like. That people should always be learning and we should always be learning from people that yeah. this is a conversation that government is a conversation it's not an election um that we should always be trading information and learning from each other all the time this is you know a living thing that should be going back and forth back and forth back and forth and you know talking to people about mobility talking to people about when i talk to folks about walking um, I like to use it in different terms because people, when you say out loud, hey, we could just walk, they were like, that's too far. And I'm like, do you know how many miles you walk in Walmart? Like when you're just <laughs> yeah. in there on Sunday, just walking around, walking with down no lists, <laughs> you know, no lists, you're just going up and down every <laughs> aisle. Before you know it, a whole hour has gone by. And now you're set in this log line. Like you well, walked you 10,000 steps. Did you not? <laughs> right. Like you walked two <laughs> miles in Walmart. But also like this idea of talking to people in terms, like I said, you know, I was like, you know, this, this bus stop is two Beyonce songs away from your house. Oh, that's a good, that's a good way to, you know, yourself. yeah. You know, this is one, you know, if you call your mom while you're walking, by the time you get there, you've had a solid enough conversation where you have fulfilled your obligation to talk to your parents. Yeah, that's right. You know, and these you are, you know, at the same time. you've gotten to walk in. Yeah. But, you know, being able to reframe um, the kinds of activities that we want people to engage in to support transit and micro mobility and shared mobility, you know, we have to, you know, basically talk to people, like talk to the people. Like they talk to us mm. in a language, in a cultural intonation that they can understand that really gets them to see these things differently. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I think about, you know, mobility and like, obviously, yes, we need to provide people with great sidewalks um, and shade. We are in the South. And as climate change continues to be a thing, it's getting hot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we need, you know, we still need people to walk, but we need them to be able to walk in shade. Yeah. Uh, we need to talk about how we're engaging businesses on these co walking corridors to just 
pass out water. Like on hot days, just sit a cooler outside with mm. ice water in it and some cups. So people who are walking by can, you know, grab a drink and stay hydrated. Great idea. Yeah. Um, you know, how are we like, how are we all, every, everything we got is being put into this, this idea of that we want to move around differently mm-hmm. and confronting those histories of restricted movement. Mm-hmm. You know, another yeah. part of why our transportation systems in the United States are so jacked up is because of segregation that we did. Yeah. We literally did not want people to move. <laughs> in certain places it was all it was all by design whether it was you know de facto in the north or de jure in the south it was done right and we have and while we may have addressed that as a society and policy we have not addressed that by design we have not gone and undesigned yeah yeah (laughs) the things that made mobility and that make mobility difficult for people Mm -hmm. and um, you know, th- those are the parts, those are like that, that next wave of like civil rights when you're talking about restorative city planning, right? Yeah. Restorative The urbanism. redesign of cities. It's like you have to redesign it because it's not enough to just, you know, say everybody can go to the park. No, we have no, 100, of we have 117 parks mm-hmm. because we needed two. Of everything, uh, you know, uh, and, and really? so uh, yes, yes, that's not sustainable. That so is this, not sustainable. So this is and, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson for parks in Birmingham, basically in action, is what you're saying. I, I, the lawsuit was brought by Fred Shuttlesworth to integrate the uh, Birmingham parks. Um, it is, you know, it, it's a real thing. Um, federal lawsuit. Um, but yeah, I mean, and separate but equal though. This is why you have this duplication. Yes, this is the duplication of yeah of of facilities. I mean, it's the same. Like, but this is not unique to Birmingham. If you go to any city across the South, you know, people having to right size school districts because again, you are having like duplicate school buildings mm-hmm. um, and other public. You know, we probably got twice as many roads. <laughs> you know, but you yeah. just think about all the things that had to be built out yes. to support um, these, these, yeah, these ideas. These, these, whether we're talking about Jim Crow or even like in my state of California, I mean, the, the level of redlining in Los Angeles. I mean, Los Angeles mm-hmm. is really the uh, the birthplace of, you know, uh, racial covenants and redlining. I mean, that's what really took root in a city that was supposedly not in the South though, but I mean, this was institutionalized de facto segregation and it is still in the urban fabric today. So what you're talking about is basically the the redesign or the re, uh, refabrication of cities to desegregate at the built environmental level, not just yeah. social policies or adding in some bike share or scooter share or on-demand transit, but actually physically reconfiguring cities so that they are woven back together. Yeah, and I, and, and really and having engaging conversations, um, you know, really talking with people about the history. Because what I find is that, you know, a lot of people don't know about redlining. A lot of people who are affected well, by redlining don't still, know but yeah. about redlining. Um, there's a documentary called Raised, 
um, that I showed I showed it last uh, February. I did um, a, a better city, a mini, a miniature better city film festival here in Birmingham. And one of the key components of it, when they talked about urban renewal, was like <laughs> how it really illustrates this is not poor people's fault, but you internalize it when you live in a space where your link, where the person who owns the property lives in the suburbs sure. or lives in a nicer part of town, but they're unwilling to properly keep up their property. Mm-hmm. And so you are exposed to this and people treat you like it's your fault. Yeah, it was like, like, oh, ga- they, were ga- they were gaslighting them. Right. It's that's like, all that's all it is. It's like, you know, you know, you're not keeping up your property and then you're thinking, oh, oh I'm not good enough because... I can't keep a, a a stable house. And it's like, this ain't even your house. <laughs> and so, but there are no consequences for the people. And this is not, this is something that persists to this day. So for in, every, every in city, cities, every, every city, city, slum clearance, have, or eminent domain, everything. It exists. And it's like people Everywhere. punish the people who are least able to fix something. And it's like, well, until you fix this, we're not going to invest in you. I'm not going to move in your neighborhood. And I'm like, it's not their fault. It's not even their house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we don't have any good mechanisms of holding landlords and landowners accountable, you know, outside of code enforcement. Like we don't, there's there's not, you know, we're not, we haven't developed those mechanisms. Um, I would imagine mostly because the ownership class doesn't want us to. No, but well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's how you by know, design. But by design. But these are these things, and I'm like, we need to talk about this out loud. That you are not responsible for these things. This is an orchestration that is decades in the making, and that is such a transformative thought to go from thinking, "Oh, this is my fault. I'm not worthy." to fully understanding what's happening. And now you can be like, oh, I'm not doing this. There's somebody else that's doing this. Then you can better understand and chart your own life and how you want to interact because you now realize that you are not contributing to your demise. Like this is, there's a different orientation to this situation. I completely agree. I mean, this is just gaslighting in its perfect form and it's really carmen in my opinion i mean i would love to hear your perspective i think it's a weaponization of public space how public space is weaponized against disadvantaged communities and the scars are left bare in every single american city to this day from los angeles to baltimore to pittsburgh to everywhere and we have not begun to even scratch the surface of this almost century-long or longer policy of basically you know, weaponizing public space in the, in the name of, you know, uh, all these topics we talked about, um, racism, classism, capitalism, whatever. Social order. I mean, there's this idea of social order and, you know, I, I, you know, we talk about, like people talk about the social determinants of health and how your zip code determines much more about you than your genetic code. And I'm like, that's a, built environment design problem like that's i mean like this is you know this is you know not having sidewalks Mm -hmm. you know having you know high speeds in the streets you know coming through neighborhoods right you know not having you know good land use planning and better zoning um 
But a lot of it for me is just information. When I have conversations with people like I'm having with you and I'm just sitting down somewhere and I'm explaining things to mm-hmm. people, the light bulbs <laughs> that go off in everyday residents' heads are just like, oh, oh. And it's like, and then it's like this chain reaction. You can see it that mm-hmm. they're like, as soon as they understand this one concept, then they understand another concept. And then it's like all these other things, their whole life now start making sense. Yeah. And it's like, yes, this is what I'm saying. And I just think it's incumbent upon us all that carry the mantle of urbanism that really love cities and really love people just because they're alive and human beings, not because they can do anything for us, is that we have to use our knowledge as a bridge and not as a wall. That we have to continue to share with people the history of cities, the yes. different opportunities that there are, and give them space and opportunity and almost demand that they share back with us. Okay, so what is your experience? Because that young man telling me, sister, I just bought a car. Yeah. When I'm trying to get him to ride the Marta bus, yeah. that, that blew my world up. I was yeah. like, dang. But it was real. I that get was, what you're saying. That's, that was I, what he, that's how he felt. And that was what he valued, though. So we can't discount and, and, say, oh, well, not you, but me or anyone saying, well, no, you got to ride the bus. No, he bought this car. This right. is what he values. And I understood why he felt he needed to. I understood particularly really powerful. As, a male, yeah. as a male person in a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. you know, where there are multiple songs about men not having cars, right? Yeah, and if he's <laughs> like, riding around on a bike or taking the bus, then his manhood or his his manhood is in question his, yeah yes his masculinity, he's, he's less, exactly he's less desirable you know his prospects for you know mating or, or you job, know other social friends, other social things. family yes yeah it's so insane. much of that is, is caught up in there and i was he, like it's context okay context, context. yeah that was like almost i don't even maybe almost 10 years ago but like it was years ago when i was working in atlanta and i was like Okay, we're doing this wrong. Yeah, that's like, what I'm saying. So it, re- it resonated you with you because you still remember that to this day, and that was a key, like, kind of uh, indicator for you. Something that you really yeah. remember as some voice from a community that uh, basically, like I said, indicated to you that maybe it's time to change course. Yeah, that we need to be thinking about this differently. Like, yeah. yes, we still want you to ride the bus because we don't want you to put the pollution in the air, but. Now I can approach this differently and understand differently. Now we can, we can promote this differently. We can talk about this differently. Um, other than you just need to get on the bus because no, it's, no, time yeah, and yeah, it's, it's better for the environment. Like we need to, like, we need okay, to talk whatever. about the social implications. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean? You know, so if we're advertising who's on the bus when we're, when we're taking shots and we're showing posters about how fun it is to ride the bus, but who's on there? And what are they doing? You know, are you meeting people on the bus in a social context? Or is this just utilitarian transportation? It's right. like, oh, this is a, you know, it's all mundane. And so I think that, you know, like I was saying like that, like I remember that, yes. I remember that clear as day. It was a hot day in Atlanta and I was sitting under their tent handing out King of Pops popsicles. <laughs> that I, re- I remember that very. You remember that detail, yeah, yeah. Yes. But uh, I think that that really um, rings true in terms of just listening to uh, people's stories because you're you're such a great storyteller yourself and listen to people's stories and um, just uh, kind of um, 
showing empathy with their, their own circumstances before we engage in this really complex process that we call urban planning, really. So I think it's really important for us to kind of um, stay rooted in that. So that's, that's really great. Yeah. Um, one last thing I just wanted to mention uh, before we wrap up here, we're kind of wrapping up, um, is just around the whole kind of, you know, urban planning process and the scars that we see in American cities and, you know, how there is, you know, we're turning the corner, let's hope we are, in terms of, uh, you know, taking, like I, I like to say more of a bottom-up grassroots approach to urbanism, mobility, et cetera, and how we're using these kind of, um, let's say, projects as a way to, let's say, kind of fill in these uh, gaps or these scars in cities and really kind of try to bring communities together because I guess I'm rambling here, but my, my point is you, one thing you mentioned was cities are good. And that kind of resonates with the theme of my podcast is cities first. So obviously I like cities. <laughs> That's why I call it that. Cities are good. They're inherently a good thing in human society for the last six, 7,000 years since their founding in the Indus River Valley and uh, current Pakistan was the first, uh, you know, urban civilizations. Mm-hmm. Cities are a good thing, but unfortunately we Americans not necessarily you and I, Carmen, but many of our fellow no, Americans, <laughs> no matter whether they're black, brown, or whatever, have a strain of um, anti-urbanism. And that is rooted in our historical uh, past. And I, I blame one founding father for this. I blame Thomas Jefferson. He was the ultimate well, hater. He was the ultimate hater of cities. He has plenty of other sins that we know about. But Thomas, <laughs> like, yeah. but, but Thomas Jefferson... <laughs> he hated cities and he was very open about that. And he did a lot of damage to the American psyche and culture in terms of our vision of a nation as white middle-class landowners, yeoman farmers that would populate the Northwest territory from Ohio onwards. That's why he uh, conducted the great, you know, um, uh, township and range surveying scheme in the late 1700s. He didn't like cities. So he was the opposite of Alexander Hamilton, who was from New York City, who wanted a real kind of industrial, you know, urban um, uh, nation. And Thomas Jefferson wanted a nation of agrarian farmers, basically, without cities. So I think our uh, aversion to cities is rooted in our cultural DNA as Americans over several centuries and even in our colonial days before Thomas Jefferson. So we have a lot to struggle with as Americans to value um, the place and the um, the benefits of cities. And I think that this is something that we need to unpack across, you know, cultural, race, and, you know, I say ethnic spectrum. So just my own, you know, historical geek out on why we have such an aversion to cities, but that was just my own take on it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we, I experienced that, you know, um, here in Alabama, Obviously, there are much, many, much, many more uh, rural communities than there are urban. We got like five. <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, Mobile, Birmingham, Montgomery, Tuscaloosa, Huntsville. And then there's smaller cities. Maybe some, um, yeah. They're caught up in our orbit mm-hmm. as the larger cities. Um, but I mean, the majority of people live in rural spaces. And, and, and if you ask them, they say they like it. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> they say they say they like it, um, but I don't know if they really do. And I think um, 
you know, another part of the American psyche that we're not really uh, upfront about is our desire to be king. You know, well, yeah, it's that's, like, that's the same thing. It's part of the individual. Yeah, it's like this. This individual. I want. I want land. I we're, want. We're not a communal society. Or, you know, it's two same thing. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a rejection of the British royal system. It was I want to be a king too. No, it was a continuation. It was we 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 never revolted against the British. We just continued on a new continent. We we expanded that. That's something we people know about our history too. And so I think, you know, so that's like you were saying that that's the 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 root of it. But also I, I think, you know. I don't know if people people want to be seen if that's something to say because like you think about it the obscurity that you can have in rural areas that you don't necessarily get to have in cities true um, and which is different from privacy because we're not talking about I'm not talking about privacy yeah I am talking about obscurity I'm talking about reclusion from social cities. yeah as a cultural thing Hey, as a cultural thing. Hey, Carmen, I'm really sorry to cut you. I'm, I, I promise oh. I wouldn't do this to you, but could we um, hear where we can um, reach you on social media and then we have to kind of uh, conclude here. I'm okay. running out of time. Okay. Sorry about this. No problem. I am at Carmen Mays MPA yes. uh, um, on cross platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, Carmen Mays, Carmen MPA. And my website is CarmenMaysMPA.com. So that's the brand, Carmen Mays, <laughs> And I will be promoting you um, once this episode drops. So um, we'll be uh, sharing kind of your hashtags, all your links to your work, as well as your website. Um, and with that, uh, I'm sorry uh, to cut this off uh, so shortly, Carmen. I would like to go on another two or three hours with you. This is a lot of fun. This is great. You can just invite me back. I'll come back. Let's do a part two and part three. We got yeah, we can do a part two. And part we got three a lot to talk about. What. We do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> so thank you so much, Carmen. It's been a real pleasure um, and uh, great to have you on the City's First podcast. And for all of our listeners, um, we'll be having our next episode in mid-June. Our speaker it will be announced shortly. And then we're going to be having the City's First webinar series where we'll be talking about uh, what's the next in micromobility in mid-July. So with that, thanks again, Car- Carmen, for joining us. And uh, we'll definitely Thank have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Okay. Enjoy. Bye. <laughs>